Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, just who should investigate deadly police shootings to ensure transparency? And also reactions to Judge Robert McBurney's decision on what will and will not be public regarding the findings of that special grand jury report. Plus, Atlanta's single population, singles population, is the fifth largest in the nation. Aww. But with over 1,500 dating apps and websites available Why are you singles frustrated with searching for love online? We'll talk about all that and also why more people are looking for love the old-fashioned way, meeting in person. And, of course, later on Closer Look. When I think of love songs, I automatically think of Luther Vandross. Of course, we're going to talk about romance on this day. We have assembled the best love songs, two minutes and 15 seconds of airtime we can afford. All that's just ahead. But first, from our WABE newsroom, state lawmakers have a new online sports betting bill to consider. As we hear from WABE politics reporter Raul Bali, the House bill might have an easier path for getting past this legislative session compared to a different one filed over in the Senate. Republican State Representative Marcus Wiedauer of Watkinsville makes clear his legislation has nothing to do with horse racing or casino gambling. It only deals with online sports betting. The Georgia Lottery would regulate and tax it. The bill is written with a 15% tax on the adjusted gross income. Uh, we are estimating that's going to be somewhere between 50 and $75 million that will go directly into the lottery, continuing to further fund educational programs that is associated with the lottery, such as HOPE, Pre-K, and other programs. By putting it under the Georgia Lottery and not changing where the money goes, Weedower believes his proposal would not require a voter-approved constitutional amendment. Instead, it would only need a simple majority in the House and Senate while a constitutional amendment needs a two-thirds majority in both chambers. House Speaker John Burns recently said not to expect casino or horse racing legislation to move forward this year. Nonetheless, a Senate online sports betting bill that allows for betting on horse races is scheduled to get its first hearing this week. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capitol. And in other legislative news, Democratic state lawmakers are pushing a series of gun safety bills this session, but their chances of becoming law are unlikely. And even getting a committee hearing will be difficult, as we hear from our other WABE politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. The most common cause of death for children in the U.S. is by firearms. One bill requires that guns be safely stored if kids can potentially access them. Representative Michelle Au says she hasn't found a Republican to co-sponsor her bill. Not one of them was brave enough to publicly support this bill. 
Inaction is a policy choice. Republicans wield most of the power in state government. They decide what bills get committee and floor votes, and usually push for fewer restrictions on guns, not more. Last session, Republicans repealed rules requiring a permit to carry a handgun. It was a priority for Governor Brian Kemp. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. And not something you want to hear on a day where we're all eating a lot of extra candy, but Georgia has a large disparity in dental health care for children in rural areas. That's according to the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. Dr. Amir Morsis is president of the academy. He says the pandemic made matters worse. Kids were at home and snacking more often, and routine checkups ended for a while. If you don't take your child to the dentist regularly, that small cavity, that beginning of a cavity that we might be able to identify early now grows into a much larger problem. Morrissey says dental problems can affect the way kids eat and sleep and how well they do in school. And he added tooth pain is among the most common reasons children miss classes. Finally, I was married by the mayor of Atlanta. That's what some lucky couples will say years from now. Hopefully, here's why. If you happen to walk through Piedmont Park this evening, you may be able to watch dozens of couples ready to tie the knot in a mass wedding ceremony. And get this, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is set to officiate. I hope he brings gifts. Crystal Love is organizing the event. She says having an elopement-style wedding option is a growing trend, given inflation and the stress that came with planning big events during the pandemic. They're expensive, they're time consuming, they're stressful. And, you know, you've got these couples that are, you know, excited about getting married and they're crying and they're stressed. We really want our couples to focus on their marriage and we'll focus on the wedding. Oh, weather permitting, love will be in the air tonight around 5 p.m. near the Piedmont Park pool and pond area. Congratulations, everybody. You're listening to Closer Look. Stay with us. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The construction of a $90 million Atlanta Public Safety Training Center in South DeKalb County will continue as planned. That's been the message from DeKalb and Atlanta officials. And even though last month, January 18th to be exact, during what authorities called a clearing operation, a trooper was wounded after being shot, according to the GBI, from activist Manuel Turan, who they say fired first and was killed as officers returned fire. That investigation is still ongoing. The family of Tehran is still demanding a face-to-face meeting with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and medical examiners. Medical examiners. The GBI has told WABE it remains committed to a complete and accurate investigation and won't release its evidence until the probe is finished. But there was body camera footage recently released by the Atlanta Police Department. It did not show the actual shooting, 
But for those officers who were also on site, well, that footage has raised more questions about the deadly officer-involved shooting and who actually fired first. And from that investigation to this one, in a couple of days, we may have a better idea of the case Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis may or may not be planning to make against former President Donald Trump and his allies for possible election meddling. Now, there's lots to talk about regarding both of these cases. Joining me now is the attorney, Michael J. Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, and he is not associated with either of these cases. Good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. Great to be with you, Rose. Thanks so much. Let's get your reaction to Judge McBurney's approach to what information will and will not be released regarding that uh, special grand jury report. Were you surprised or you were expecting that? You know, I really wasn't surprised. I, I think he sort of has taken a Solomonic approach all throughout this case, and he's, he's split the baby a lot of times uh, in, in some of his rulings. I, I think he's done a good job uh, managing the special grand jury, but this this wasn't a big surprise for me. That we, We've talked before about the importance of maintaining grand jury secrecy and uh, the way that both protects people and protects ongoing investigations and, and frankly, protects people who ultimately are not charged by the grand jury from having the the uh, their reputation harmed e- even more than 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 having it mentioned in the paper. So um, I think he looked at all that. He looked at the due process concerns, and he's he's now uh, uh, coming forward. And Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis yesterday saying she would not appeal Judge McBurney's decision, but in a statement she called a quote legally sound and consistent with her request. So does that give the public or even folks like you, the experts, that perhaps that means she might? Be willing to bring some charges, or it's really poker face. You just don't know. Yeah, I um, I don't know that the statement tells me anything. I think you know anybody looking at this, the time and the money that she spent on this investigation, and the fact that she's kind of given some public statements and media interviews and that type of thing. I don't think there's any question she's going to bring some charge, you know, against somebody. And the question is who and how wide does that net go? And I think it's pretty clear that uh, she's likely to charge Trump. Uh, and, uh, you know, some other people maybe in, in, in his circle, especially when we talk about dealing with the, the uh, fake electors or testimony given uh, falsely uh, before some of the uh, Georgia uh, House and Senate uh, uh, committees. When it comes to public interest and then when it comes to actually wanting to, you know, follow the, the law and be fair, you know, what the public may want and what the district attorney and as you just said, the way they want to approach this. Can you understand that some folks are saying, well, listen, why shouldn't we know? Because if the if the district attorney is going to file charges anyway, then we in the public, we should be able to know that this person gave testimony or this person quite possibly might be charged with, you know, uh, lying under oath. Is there a balance here? Yeah, th- there's a balance. Um, but the balance uh, plays out, I think, later in the judicial court system. And so for anybody who questions why aren't we seeing the whole picture, I would just say, well, imagine if you were actually included in that picture, but you had done nothing wrong. <laughs> right. And so don't do put my to, name in it. <laughs> that's right. Do you want do you want to, uh, you know, sort of be thrown in the mud pile with the pigs and, uh, and you know, you're going to get some mud on you if you do, even if you're ultimately not sitting down for bacon. So I, I just think, uh, you know, there, there is a balance to be had, but there. There's a there's a lot of years of history, a lot of good precedent about keeping grand jury investigations secret. That's for a reason. Uh, and, and I think she recognizes that McBurney did the right thing. He, he also recognizes that the public has a right to know. And mm-hmm. so he is releasing some portions of this special grand jury report. But he's letting the D.A. move forward with her constitutional duty to make a decision about whether or not she's going to charge anybody and if she decides to what that's going to be. 
in the eight years that I've been on this program, you're the first person to make the mud pile with the pigs <laughs> reference. And I don't know. Well, if you, I don't know if you get a T-shirt for that. I, 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 although you, I, I, don't, I look forward to my T-shirt. <laughs> I hope it's not muddy, but I appreciate the, it being the first on it. You are the first. I want to get back to listen. Three parts of the report that will be made public are the introduction, the conclusion and section eight where jurors had some concerns that some of the witnesses may have lied under oath. How common is that for a jury to express or, the, or here to express those sentiments? It, um, it, it's probably not uncommon in, in the confines of the jury room. What's unique is that because we're seeing a special purpose grand jury that we actually have a written report. Remember that most of the time, and this is a rare occasion in, in mm -hmm. Georgia, we don't usually see special purpose grand juries. Mm -hmm. you, you, do, you have investigative grand juries in the federal system, but you don't see this in the state system. And so you often don't get the benefit of, of seeing what they thought about the case outside, of, unless you're the prosecutor, of course. I mean, if you're the prosecutor, you're in the room with them and they're telling you this or telling you that, or they're expressing concern about this witness or that witness, but you don't have it in a written format. So to, to that extent, it's, it's unusual. Now, I'm going to ask you this, and I don't know if you'll, you know, have you always been, I think you've always been upright first, you know, but listen, do you expect, after everything you've heard so far, I may have read, do you expect D.A. Willis to issue some indictments here? I, I don't think there's any doubt. I, I don't think there's a doubt in the world that she's going to issue some indictments. I think the question, again, will be how far does she go? And, you know, from, from the outset of this investigation, she's had a very clear case, almost a straight line to Trump, and that deals with his phone call to Raffensperger, mm -hmm. which I think on its face was like having a recorded admission or confession uh, to criminal conduct for trying to influence and intimidate him and uh, to solicit a sense of him to commit election fraud by finding those other votes. The question for me will be, does she expand that net sign to catch other people who may have been involved in the planning of that or the participation of the call or in the overall scheme to shift votes uh, or to falsify reports of election fraud in the state of Georgia. And so I don't know how far she'll go ultimately with that. And that's going to be a decision she'll have to make. You know, she's been looking at this as a RICO prosecution as well, an investigation. And that means that she's looking at some of the or um, criminal enterprise type ideas. And essentially what that means for people listening is that if one member of the RICO uh, group, mm -hmm. one member of the group does something, then that's, that wrongdoing is attributable to the whole group. Uh, it would be sort of a shorthand way to say it. And so um, I, I really expect she may look at something like that. I mean, it, but, but let's, let's also talk about the size. She's got to be thinking too about, do I have enough evidence to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt to a mm -hmm. trial jury? And that trial jury is going to be made up and is not is not like a grand jury that develops a personal friendly relationship with the prosecutor. That trial jury is made up of people all over Fulton County. Mm -hmm. and, and as you know, Fulton County is, is, is not homogenous. I mean, there are different political affiliations and groups all throughout the county. So that jury is likely to have members uh, that, that see different sides of the uh, and, and on different sides of the political spectrum. And, and, and that is going to come into play as she makes a decision about what can I prove? Mm -hmm. Am I likely to get a conviction? And can I support that conviction if I get one on appeal to our state appellate courts? Can you imagine the media, and I do mean this word, media circus here, if that indeed happens? I want to shift and talk about the other ongoing investigation, of course, that's in the news, and that's the probe into exactly what happened at the site of the Atlanta Police and Fire Training Facility. And a question that a lot of folks have been asking, look, look, GBI and, and other state bureaus of investigation, they are charged with investigating all what they consider deadly 
police. I know some people don't like the word police involved, but for the sake of this conversation, is there any other entity other than the Department of Justice that you think folks should should say, well, maybe this ought to be the entity that investigates these these type of incidents? It just seems like folks want something different. But for now, do we have anything different? Is there any any other type of approach that could be used here? Well, I mean, there's always questions about whether or not there's a lawsuit that's filed by by the family of someone mm-hmm. who's um, killed as a result of a shooting. I mean, that, but that's kind of putting the cart ahead of the horse a, a little bit in the sense of your question. That I, I think that investigations, whether it's by the GBI, whether it's by a district attorney, a U.S. attorney, whatever, those things are, are the goal of them is to, to build public confidence or to have so that the public can believe in the findings. And I think there are things that can be done to increase public confidence in these types of cases. And sometimes that may be having uh, a citizen or two non-sworn law enforcement officer participate in some of the discussions. I don't want to get to a place where we have just a flat citizen review board, because mm-hmm. I do think that the we, we have trained people and you want you want people who are trained and have experience in things like ballistics, uh, forensic evidence, um, reconstruction of crime scenes, those types of things. You want them to participate in these investigations and not have something that's moved only by emotion. So to that extent, um, you know, I, I think there there probably are some things that, that can be done to, to make the public have more confidence. But primarily, mm-hmm. that can be done just with transparency, yeah. right? That's, yeah. that's one of the reasons we talk about police body cam footage and those types of things. And, and I think anytime you have a... Uh, a police commanding officer come out or a governmental figure come out or something and say, look, we want to be transparent. Here's what we have. Here's how it went down. This is what we know. That that starts to do, build that foundational confidence that, that I'm talking about. In this in this instance also to uh, Attorney Moore, because the, the trooper was not, did not have body camera, a camera. Now, most of them have the dash cam in their cars. Do you think it should be across the board, if you are in law enforcement, as in, in terms of a trooper or an officer, a police officer, that they should all always have body camera? And I know you can get into how much it costs for smaller police departments, but this trooper was not, did not have body camera. So, you know. Yeah, I, I'm in. I'm in favor of it, uh, and and one reason is is both that it is good for the public to be able to see it, but also if I were advising a, a law enforcement agency, I'd tell them you need to have a body camera on because if something goes bad, you need to have your side of the story on tape too. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I think it help it benefits both sides. I don't think it's an issue that necessarily comes down to it, it's just for pu- the, the public or you know, the uh, maybe the victims or aggrieved uh, members of the public, but it it's also protects as well the, the the law enforcement officer. And I don't think, you know, to me, we really trust folks to get out there, and, and the vast majority of them are good people, and they really do take the oath to serve and protect very seriously, and they honor that. Um, uh, so th- this kind of extra protection, this kind of eyewitness on the scene of anything that goes wrong, whether it's something that happens at a traffic stop, whether mm-hmm. it's something that happens at a shooting, whatever it may be, it, it really does go to, to help as well uh, both prosecutors and law enforcement officers as, as they do their job, too. In this case where a civilian was was killed and the family is demanding a face-to-face meeting with the GBI and also the medical examiners, is do you think that there needs to be some type of provision? Because, listen, your, your, their loved one has, has been killed and perhaps they want to have an an outside investigation taking place as it relates to the body, and but that hasn't happened as far as we know. 
Yeah, I, I think that any time a family wants to sit down with the chief law enforcement officer, that ought to be done. Mm-hmm. I just think, and I tried to do that as, as U.S. Attorney when we, we had some police shootings and I would try to meet with the family. And I, I just believe that that's something that, you you know, everybody can find time to do. Sometimes during the pendency of an investigation, there may be certain facts that you're trying to get to the bottom of, or you may have some details that you're working through. I understand the need to have a full and complete story so that you can have a really fulsome and honest discussion, frankly, with the with the family. Um, but, you know, if it's a matter of sitting down even for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and saying, I'm here, I promise you we're looking into this, um, you know, I'm going to try to be transparent with you, you understand, I have some obligations as well to get to the bottom of it completely, uh, but but, you, but please call me if you have a question, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, regardless of how this went down, I, I want you to know that I'm here, because frankly, that person in charge is also their chief law enforcement officer, right, mm-hmm. I mean, even even the, the family's uh person. So that's, um, you know, I, I think you, you balance your, uh, your role, your duty that you are sworn to, to do, uh, mm-hmm. with also the empathy that's needed as you interact with the public, uh, to, in, in these terrible circumstances, there are no good, uh, there are no good meetings like this. I mm-hmm. mean, somebody's hurting or, or you've got a law enforcement that's been officer that's been injured or you've got, or you're telling a law enforcement officer's family, that you're investigating the person who killed them. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, these these happen uh, on both sides of the, I, I, I guess, of the arena. And it's, um, there just are no good meetings, but the way to deal with it is to, to confront it and give people a chance to know that they're being heard. As we begin to wrap up with this investigation ongoing and from what you've been able to hear and, and, and read, uh, do you think the GBI through your lens is, is being as transparent as they could have been? they have been so far yeah and i'll tell you you know my I'm, my exposure to it is limited to what's in the public reporting mm-hmm. uh, about it uh, i have seen a lot of reporting about it i've seen some statements about uh, review of tapes and those types of things that have been available uh and, and i and that seems to me to be very transparent uh and uh you know the you you don't get in trouble with true too much transparency in these cases uh again you think about it not just on a case-by-case basis, but on sort of a policy. That The policy that's in place and the reason we do this is so that everybody, uh, even the people who are not directly affected by this, can have confidence that the the, the, uh, the GBI is doing the right thing or the state troopers or the police departments are doing the right thing. And, I, and what I've seen, that, that they have been. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of that confidence is it also helps for the next time there's an interaction with police. It helps with the, th- those things are important. Well, we're about four days away from this being exactly one month. The longer that this investigation continues and, and we're all everyone's waiting, you can understand that some folks are saying, well, what's wh- what else could they possibly be in- investigating here if there, there's been allegations that some folks who they need to testify may not because they've they've been charged with domestic terrorism. So there's a lot of optics in here, Attorney Moore. There are, and there are ways that you can get testimony and, and uh, you can offer people use immunity and other things to, so that you can have a clear picture of, of, of what went on. Um, and I think that's that's important. Uh, 30 days, frankly, in an investigation like this is not a long time. I know mm-hmm. it feels like it if you're the family or your people. You know, I get that. Uh, but I can tell you 30 days in an investigation where there's an officer involved shooting is, is not a, is not a long time, uh, especially with these circumstances and where there's a, a, a you know, evidence to review 
there needs to be the, the forensic analysis as well as the crime scene analysis, and that does take some time. And so um, I, I, I appreciate every effort that I've seen thus far at transparency. Attorney Michael J. Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, as always, thank you for taking the time and offering your legal expertise. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. And we should note in related news, we wanted to give you an update regarding the planned training site. Now, during the Atlanta City Council's Public Safety Committee meeting yesterday, Council Members Michael Julian Bond and Antonio Lewis had questions regarding the site as it relates to safety. Councilmember Bond asked APD Deputy Chief Timothy Peake if adding more officers to patrol the site would impact other zones. So what we are doing with that particular site, and, and there's a component of every division with minimal, extreme minimal impact to field operations for the 911 patrol center. Uh, we have placed some officers out there because of uh, the violence that's been at the particular location to ensure that uh, the officers aren't hurt, that the construction people who are there doing the service on behalf of Atlanta Police Foundation and the build out would be safe because there have been threats, there have been a lot of things going on. But it's a very small footprint of people that are there with a good plan in place to ensure that everyone's safe. And uh, just to follow up, we still have not yet annexed that property right into the city. I know that there might be an effort to do so. So does, in providing the security, do we still have to call DeKalb County to come when there's an incident? Or does that arrest power extend to that city-owned land, even though it's not within the city limits? So a lot of moving pieces, and I would like to uh, have an offline conversation about the specifics to it. What I will say is that we have officers that are there who are in communication and working alongside other state entities, as well as county, DeKalb County entities, and we also have some dep deputized people that are on site within APD. The but to get into the, the um, specifics, yes, I'd like okay. to do that offline. Okay. Well, we can do that. Well, that exchange was followed by Councilmember Antonio Lewis asking this of Deputy Chief Peak. Yes, uh, particularly because uh, Councilmember Bunn uh, opened up uh, this door. And, and I didn't know that. Uh, why do we have uh, our officers out there? Uh, and, and is this something that we typically would do for a, a nonprofit or for a private organization? So quite frankly, I think this is a place that we've never been with the level of violence that we've had at that location and what's happening. And it's a city-owned property. So um, I think it's one that we probably need to have a briefing offline on it. But we are in communication with every step with our Department of Law to ensure that we as a city of Atlanta is in the best place that we can be moving forward to keep everybody with the vested interest safe. I would, I would just me personally, because uh, I've been told to, we have to pay for security to, for for little league basketball games. Uh, we have to pay for for police or, or for Fulton County sheriffs for anything we do. I would hope that a organization with as much money and backing as the organization that's building that company, that we are treating them how we treat our kids, and when we need them for when we need uh, police to help us with traffic, so we can stop the young man from getting hit on Cleveland Avenue who was hit. Because we have, we couldn't afford. Uh, I couldn't afford to pay somebody to come out there and do that type of stuff. And so I, w I would hope that we're treating everything the same. All right, we'll move on to our legislative agenda. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
WCP. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, please take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. And if you don't know what that saying means, then I'm old. More than 70% of adults in Atlanta are single, allegedly. That's according to Magnify Money and their analysis of the latest U.S. Census Census data. Now, with a ranking of 70.4%, Adults in Atlanta classify as single, placing Atlanta among the top five cities with the largest singles population. By the way, we're tied with Omaha. I'm just reading what's here. Those numbers also mean big business for the online dating industry. Perhaps Omaha and Atlanta, we should come together and have a big old, I don't know, speed dating thing. I don't know. But look, with over 1,500 dating apps and websites available, my next guests say singles are getting more frustrated and finding fewer matches. Oh, Sangeeta Singh Kurtz and Lakshmi Rajgarajian are hosts of the podcast Land of the Giants Dating Games, where they explore the business side of the dating apps and how they might be intentionally or unintentionally keeping people single. Welcome. This segment is going to either make people happy or really disappoint some folks. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Happy <laughs> Thank Valentine's you, Rose. Day. Oh, you're the first person. No, you're the second person to re- to uh, greet me with Happy Valentine's Day. I appreciate that. Okay, so let's get to this. Now, are we seeing that folks are moving away from the dating apps? What's going on there? I'll start with you, Sangeeta. What's happening? I mean, no, they're still they're still on the dating apps. I think that. What we've seen is that over the past ten years, you know, we've had these for ten years now. The other ways of meeting people through family, through social activities, through church, et cetera, they've sort of died on the vine. And the main way people have met people since like 2019 or so is through dating apps. So yes, people are still on them, but people are getting madder and madder about being on them. They're getting burnt out more than anything. Oh my. Okay. Um, Lakshmi, let's, you agree with that? Folks are getting burned out here? Yeah, I mean, I think what Sangeetha's saying is right. It's the other options kind of like withered away. It's like one day, you know, app dating was an option. And then the next day, it seemed like it was the only way to meet people. Mm-hmm. And I think that change happened probably more quickly than people expected. And so when something is the only option, you're going to, you know, there's going to be an over-reliance on that. And um, I think that over-reliance is where some of the f- fatigue and frustration is coming from. Now, you all are experts in this space. It's not just not just we just picked y'all out the blue. But here's a question I actually have from a listener who said, now, look, do these dating apps, do they really use all these fancy and complex algorithms to match people? Or, you know, because you're going to ask people to pay $19.95 or whatever it is, $9.95 a month. I mean, is there really some some, I guess, bolts, nuts and bolts that go into these dating apps? And we got to swipe this and swipe that and add this and answer that. And they're going to match you. What do you think? Sangeeta? That's that's a great question. Um, I mean, the short answer is none of these apps share their algorithms. It's like we compared it to like Coca-Cola's secret formula. Like if you ask them, they'll be like, no, 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 no. We cannot tell you what's going on behind the scenes. And when we spoke to data scientists, 
about this. They said they don't want to tell you about it because it's actually kind of dumb. Like it's really straightforward. It's not as complex as they want you to think. Basically, what we deduced is that they use historical data. So they'll see how you've swiped before and they'll match you with people that you matched with before. So <laughs> it's really not rocket science and it doesn't lead a lot of the time to IRL compatibility. So I think what we found in our reporting is that these apps can match you with a lot of people, but those matches, you know, they may not serve you. And that's what uh -huh. we're hearing from a lot of daters. So a lot of bad dates, a lot of swiping, but a lot of like, you know, flop dates. <laughs> flop. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Luxury. What do you want and to add to that? No, you were saying like, you know, I'm paying for this. I'm paying for that. I mean, it's, it's, it is typical for a business, right? To offer something to people often for free and then figure out how they can charge them later. And that's exactly what happened on the apps. So you know, you you ha you you lead people to this product. You say it's for free, and then of course you're going to do an audit of all the different ways that you can charge someone mm -hmm. for that experience that maybe was initially free. And so that's what people are saying. They're like, "Oh, this like now I've got to pay for this. I've got to pay to see who swiped right on me. I got to pay for a super like. I got to pay for a rose. I got to pay to see a you know something that I maybe someone I maybe passed over." And so yeah, all of these things are you know now profit centers. I, I, and I know I'm showing that I'm not hip. You said pay for a rose. What? What? I don't know what that means. So it's uh, one of the functionalities on one app called oh. Hinge, and it's a way of expressing like <laughs> elevated interest. Like you really like someone, you can you can give them a rose. And you have to pay for that. I can't just do the little emoji rose. Is that oh, the same? No, you get one no, free no. one. You get one free one, <laughs> and then you got for pay. the rose. <laughs> How much does that rose cost? I would want to know. I mean, you know. Three ninety nine. dollars okay. Yes, for, <laughs> for a fake digital rose. <laughs> but like your your reaction is sort of, it's funny because it's, it's well-founded because you haven't been in this universe, but this is very normal for people who are. So it's interesting, right? Like these things <laughs> that if you haven't been in this world um, are like, even just now, I just use that expression <clears throat> assuming you wouldn't understand what I was saying, <laughs> but yes, you, you, yes, it is a, it is a whole other world. Now I was told, and, and our producer, our supervising producer, Tiffany Griffith worked on this segment. She was talking about, and I think my producer, Daniel, they were talking about, there's something now where you can send your, an avatar or something on the date first that like the other person has an avatar and the avatars meet or whatever, before you decide if you want to meet with the person, what in the world? You sound like so horrified, Rose, but <laughs> within reason, within reason, yes. So um, our final episode of the show, which is dropping tomorrow, it's about the future of dating. You know, we've been swiping for 10 years. And so we spoke to a couple people who are developing products in the AI space, in the metaverse dating space. And we spoke to one CEO who is launching an app for Gen Z, where you train your avatar to go on dates for you. And if your avatar gets along in the metaverse, maybe you'll meet in real life one day. Who's to say? But yes, um, the future of dating, it seems in a lot of ways, is becoming for further digitized. And the idea is like, oh, it'll get easier for us. Like, it'll be more frictionless. But 
at the same time, what we're hearing from daters is like, that's crazy. We want to meet in person. <laughs> we want like tactile human experiences. So I think the question in the future is going to be, are we going to do more tech or are we going to run away from this all? Well, and, and Lakshmi, that brings me to this because mm-hmm. we know technology, we, we love it, right? There's been so many enhancements to our, our daily lives, our quality of life, as I like to say. But are we are we really going to get to a point now where, and maybe it's a safety issue too, I want to be very clear about that, where we will rely on technology to help us, you know, maybe buffer between someone that may not be for us? I mean, is this where we're going with this? And is it true that maybe this generation is more likely to do that than us old folks who are in Generation X? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's what this series explores is the past, present, and future of mm-hmm. dating. And, um, you know, these these timelines between when something is introduced into society and when there's mass adoption is becoming shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we didn't all think we would be looking, you know, living half of our lives on Zoom three sure. years ago. And look, look at where we are. Like things can change very, very quickly. And that's why, you know, this reporting that Sangeeta has done is so is so important. Um, but, yeah, I don't think. And, and also to the point of is this a younger person's thing or an older person's thing? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think it's an everybody thing. I think everyone should be paying attention because what part of what we heard from Gen Z is actually they're trying to push away from tech. They like tech, but not in this part of their lives. Mm-hmm. And they they have seen kind of like, you know, what has happened and they may or may not want it. And then it's also important to remember that people are single or looking for a relationship at multiple points during their lives. It's not just a people in their 20s sort of endeavor. Um, so these really, this really does have implications for all of society, not just people who are young and single. Let's talk about the business side of this for a moment, because this is big business. And I'm, I'm curious, with the pandemic, did we see this an increase in folks using apps or a decrease? Yeah, we saw more people start to use them during the pandemic. And the business is interesting because it is a billion dollar tech business and the way these businesses operate is off of the things that we were talking about, like buying roses, um, you know, in your app via subscriptions, things mm-hmm. of that nature. And the thing that we're curious about is whether a company's business objectives are aligned with like a user's goals. So mm-hmm. a user wants to find a partner, but the company, because they're a company, want to make money. We found that a lot of the time those goals were sort of misaligned, but Match Group did just release its earnings report um, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it showed, I think, its first quarterly drop in revenue ever, which we sort of talked about as being those people who were forced to or chose to date on mm-hmm. these apps during the pandemic, um, you know, getting off of them now that we're getting a little bit more back to normal. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Lakshmi, are we seeing more and more dating apps that are very, very specific for groups? I know there's something out there for farmers who are looking for mm-hmm. love. I remember I'm old enough to remember uh, Black People Meet. <laughs> you know, oh, black people made it still there. Is black okay? Yeah. Well, I, you yeah. know that I look again. I'm old, um, but are we seeing more? And of course, there are apps that are for the LGBTQ community. Are we seeing more specialized apps and websites for particular populations and demographics here? Yeah, we are. Um, in fact, um, we did a, an entire episode just focused on the niche apps, the one that we released last week. Yeah, I think there's always going to be, you know these sort of like niche apps that are like, hey, people who like Star Trek or people who, you know, do this activity or, you know, subscribe to this identity. Um, I think that those apps struggle because you do need to have a lot of people on an app Mm -hmm. for it to work and for people to have a good experience. So it's always going to be a challenge, but it's not impossible. 
And I think that um, the the more that people come in who want to really speak to a specific situation or a specific identity, I think we you know we we could see more niche apps. The trick is, can they last? Can they sustain mm. their business models? Do you think this business model as an industry will continue to thrive, or where do you all see this going? Yeah, I think um, I think you know. A lot of the apps that we used are owned by one company, Match Group. I think a very large percentage of them. And while that company is not making as much as like Facebook or an Amazon, like they do own a large share of the market and they are pulling in billions of dollars every year. So, you know, that's a lot of money. They are making investments in metaverse. And I think one thing we're curious about is whether they just want to match people romantically or they mm-hmm. just want to be the number one way of connecting people uh forever so i think i think yes they will continue growing as a business they will continue looking into this sort of like ai metaverse further digitization of our relationships and our connections um Hmm. yeah lakshmi what do you think where is the industry going i think uh the industry will continue to grow um but i don't know that people are going to be as excited about it (laughs) right it's one of those things that like you know, for as many people that use Amazon, you know, there's sort of like mixed feelings about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it'll be an industry that grows that people will always have mixed feelings about. And um, those feelings could go either way, depending on how much they listen to their users um, and shape the experience. Now, I'm just asking for a friend. Mm -hmm. Is there there a dating app for people who are cat owners? I'm just asking for a friend. (laughs) That's so funny. That's really funny. Um, Because Sangeet and I talked about this in the last episode. So there was, it was, uh, it did not (laughs) last. But here's the thing. Really? I bet you there's a new one that popped up in the past couple months because it's one of those ideas that people are like, I think this is a thing. (laughs) And then it's not. But, you know, I don't fault anyone for trying. (laughs) I think that could work. A, a, A dating app for people who just love cats. Because look. Some cat owners, again, speaking for a friend, will not date someone if they don't like cats or or animals. Just keeping it real. I think that was the idea behind (laughs) behind the app. It was called Tabby. Maybe it'll be resurrected. Tabby. That's that's the first problem. Tabby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just have to help them with their branding and maybe things will be different this time. (laughs) As we begin to wrap up, I have to ask you all this. It is Valentine's Day. Uh, Lakshmi, I'll start with you. Do you have a ultimate love song that just speaks love and all that good stuff to you? It was funny. I saw this question. I just... I guess anything by Babyface. I think. Really, <laughs> Kenneth yeah. Edmonds. Okay, all right. Is that bad? No, no. He is incredible, oh, okay. incredible songwriter. Uh, okay, Sangeeta. Yeah, that was like the first song like popped in my head. Oh, no, so. that's mm-hmm. good. Sangeeta, what about you? I'm afraid. Like, unfortunately, it's probably a Drake song. Like something. Drake. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Is that like a curse word on no, this? No, no. Listen, no judgments. <laughs> Wow. I'm so sorry. It's probably like a Drake. It's probably That's from Marvin's room. It's so romantic and like sad. Okay. Um, Drake. Well, you know what? No judgments here. Sangeeta Singh Kurtz and Lakshmi <laughs> Rangarji and their host of the podcast, Land of the Giants Dating Games, where they explore the business side of the dating apps 
and how they might be intentionally or unintentionally keeping people single. Thank you both for taking time. Good conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for Thank having Thank you, us. Rose. All right. Now, you all can hang on if you want because now, <sighs> if you have a favorite love song out there, Atlanta, and, and we'd love to hear from you, I'll share mine in just a moment. But because, of course, it's a Valentine's Day, some of the favorites from our Closer Look producers, that would be Pat St. Clair, LaShawn Hudson, Tiffany Griffith, and Daniel Razel. I asked them, I said, really think about this. And let me tell you something. They went all out. Take a listen. When I think of love songs, I automatically think of Luther Vandross. And when I hear those first few chords of Never Too Much, I'm transported back to that time when I was in love and so happy. I just think it's the ultimate Valentine's Day song. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. My favorite top love song still remains Angel by Anita Baker. I mean, it's sweet, it's soulful, and the lyrics are just incredible and really just describes what it means to truly love someone. I'd like to send special, warm, and beautiful Valentine's Day wishes to all of the Closer Look listeners out there, as well as to my sweetheart, Marvin, and our beautiful baby boy. My ultimate love song is Longing to Belong by Eddie Vedder. I absolutely adore the song. It makes my hopeless romantic heart just melt. And it reminds me a lot of the song that my parents got married to, the Hawaiian wedding song by Bing Crosby. Um, You know, they're going on almost 50 years married, so maybe there's something about a song with a little ukulele. Cause all my time is spent here Longing to belong to you One of my favorite love songs is Você e Eu, Eu e Você by Tim Maia. It's fun, it's upbeat, and it's just great to listen to all around. But on Valentine's Day, I also think about my mom. It's her birthday today, and I know she loves his music, and she loves a great dance song. Our Closer Look producers sharing their favorite love songs. Now, before I get to mine, I just want to critique what they had to say. Now, Pat had Luther Vandross. Can't go wrong with that. Luther, A+. Uh, LaShawn Hudson with Anita Baker, who was in concert tonight. Hope y'all got tickets. That's A+. Um, Tiffany, we're going to talk offline about that because I love Eddie Vedder. I do. But, yeah, okay. Uh, Daniel with the disco, kind of upbeat dancing. I like that. We didn't get to Sawyer, our new engineer. Sawyer, tell me your love song in my ear and I'll tell the audience. Anderson Park. Walk Away. Okay, not bad. Okay. Now, drum roll, please. Now everyone's waiting. This next song, which is my favorite because it reminds me of my parents. Take a listen.
And so this was my mom's favorite song. Um, I remember playing the 45. I remember my mom singing this, my dad singing this. And whenever I hear this song, it just makes me think of them. They were married for 50 years plus, just an amazing couple and an amazing song. So when I hear this, this is what I think of. So you, you can listen to it for a little bit. We'll go to break and then we'll come back. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineers are Kevin Rinker and Sawyer Vanderworth. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm Rose Scott. shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.